a pastor we'll just call Tim, wanted to tell a young woman about Jesus. But there were a couple of challenges. She was a Muslim, and she was deaf. Those obstacles were nothing for Jesus. But she says one time she fell asleep, and she had a dream, and she's walking down a road, and she looks to the side, and she sees people, and there's flames, and they're, they're burning. And that frightened her, so she looked up, and up ahead of her was Jesus with his arms wide open. And she said she woke up, and that was when she believed. Jesus never promised his followers an easy path. In fact, he told his disciples that the world would hate them. He sent them out as sheep among wolves. Jesus' words came true in the life of the apostles, and they're still coming true today in the lives of his followers around the world. Join host Todd Nettleton as we hear their inspiring stories and learn how we can help, right now on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network. Welcome to the Voice of the Martyrs Radio. My name is Todd Nettleton, and uh, we're going to talk today about one of my very favorite countries in the whole world. Uh, It's a place that I will find any excuse to visit have had the chance to several times. We're going to be talking about the nation of Turkey. And in particular, as we talk about Turkey here at Voice of the Martyrs, one of the stories that is close to my heart, close to our hearts, is the story of three men who gave their lives for the gospel in the nation of Turkey. Our guest today is Pastor Tim. He is a pastor in the city of Malatya, where those three men gave their lives now almost 10 years ago. And so we're going to talk a little bit about their story that is still going on, about what God is still doing in that city and in Turkey. Pastor Tim, welcome to Voice of the Martyrs Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Now, Pastor Tim has a background, not necessarily in theology, but in physics. So he can probably tell us some very interesting things about physics as well as Turkey. We won't go too far down that road. But I do want to ask, how did God bring you from a physics background to serving as a pastor in a Muslim country? Uh, it doesn't seem like that's the traditional pathway to the pastorate. It, it probably isn't. I think I'm a pastor by accident, if you will. Um, I grew up in Indonesia. My parents were missionaries in Indonesia, and I grew up seeing the need in the Muslim nation, seeing the lack of uh, Christian testimony in many of the different islands. Um, So when I was working in physics at Fermilab and growing as a Christian myself, sort of going from you live on other people's expectations, you go to college, you get your first job, and then as a man you start to have to decide where is the course of my life going to go. I read the verses in Philippians which say, don't just live for yourself, but put other people's needs first. And I couldn't escape the knowledge that there are vast areas where there's no churches at all. And knowing that I'd grown up in a poor country and having seen many Western missionaries struggle to live in poor countries, I knew I could stay where others couldn't. And I I just told the Lord, look, I don't have a pastor's gifting, but I can go and I can do all the busy work that keeps those pastors busy so that they can get out and use those spiritual gifts if you want me to. And over time, God laid on my heart more and more of a desire to go. And the path took me through the inner cities of America and then through London. And eventually we got married to my wife, Sarah. And God seemed to be calling us to Turkey. And even then, I felt totally unequipped. But in the passage of Jesus feeding the 5,000, the disciples 
when Jesus says, you feed them, um, they, they panic and they say, Lord, you know what? We can't do this. There's too many. We've just got you know, this little lunch, which isn't even enough for us. And God just said, give it to me. And he blessed it and he gave it back to them. And he said, now feed them. And they were able to do it with what God had blessed. And I realized that no matter how small my gifts were, I just give it to the Lord and he can do it. And with that affirmation, we stepped out in faith. And then when the killings happened, um, we were just out of language school. We were not the most equipped people to go, but we were available. We went to just help through the crisis. And as a year passed or two years passed, the team didn't reform. The Turkish people started calling me Pastor Tim. <laughs> and my first response was, no, no, that's, that's silly. I'm just the first aid guy. We're waiting for the grownups to get back. But as, as the years passed and the grownups never returned, we just accepted that this was the role that the Lord had called us into. So that's how the Lord sort of brought us into things sideways. One of our fascinations here at VOM Radio and at VOM, obviously, is reaching Muslims with the gospel. How did growing up in a Muslim nation, Indonesia, give you more tools or more comfort level to live in a Muslim nation that, that maybe if you'd grown up in America, you wouldn't have that attitude or that skill set? As far as a comfort level, I grew up knowing a lot of Muslim neighbors, and they're not scary people. They're really nice people for the most part. And Turkey is the same way. They're very hospitable, very warm, especially out of the major cities. Major cities, you know, Istanbul is like London or New York. People are so busy, they don't have time. But in, in Malatya, no matter what shop I go into, there's time for tea. Wow. And, and in some ways, it's much easier to share the gospel than it is in America, because in America, talking about God is kind of weird and kind of rude. Whereas in Turkey, it's a normal part of their lives. You, you know, they will talk about God, you talk about God. That's not a problem. One of the differences is that in the eyes of other Muslims, Turks are very bad Muslims. They don't read the Quran. They don't do most of what they need to do. It's, it's a very deep cultural identity rather than a living religion for them. Just like maybe 150 years ago, to be Italian meant you were Catholic because you had the Pope. In the same way, to be a Turk is to be a Muslim. Even though it goes down to the bone, it's all there is for many of them. They do face not prison and torture like some countries, but definitely um, you lose the community you have, the community that provides jobs and provides sort of insurance against whatever's happening. You'll lose that. And so one of our great struggles is making the Christian church a new community. But that is very hard regularly, and Malatya was extra hard because after the killings, um, there was a real suspicion and fear because Emre Gunaydin, the man who had was the ringleader of the killers, had come and said, I want to have Bible studies. He had sort of come into the fellowship, and then he had gone bowling with the kids. And then when he was revealed to be the killer, the normal lack of trust, the normal fear was just amplified. And for, for about two years... That was our greatest struggle of just telling people, look, even if one of the people in this room is a government agent or is somebody here to harm us, we just have to lay that at the foot of the cross and they can just hear the gospel. You know, they need to hear the gospel too. Don't try to carry it. Just leave it to Jesus. And, and that reminds me of the story of uh, Najati, one of the three men who was killed, we had his wife, Shemsa, here on VOM Radio, and 
uh, talked about the fact that even the morning of the killings, right. he had mentioned, you know, I'm not sure these guys are on the up and up. I, right. I don't know if they're genuine, but even if they're not genuine, this is their chance to hear the gospel. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to go meet with them. And he goes and never comes home. Right. How how has the church responded to that? Because like you say, you have to understand, we're going to go to church on Sunday or Friday, as the case may be. We're going to gather in a room full of people, and some of them might be there to spy on us, might even be there planning to kill us. How does the church respond? Well, for about two years, it really was a struggle. But for about two years, almost no one knew wanted to come to the church. There was just one new believer in that time. And it was just just a lot of praying and just telling people, look, you know, we have the eternal perspective. Even if they kill us, that's why we're here. We're here to tell them about the gospel. If they kill us, we just step through the door into glory. It's not, it's not the end of the world that it is for the others. And over time, those who could not overcome, they would move to different cities. And the ones who, who remained were the ones who said, yeah, we are here. We are willing to make a stand. And that then progressed to, well, if we're willing to make a stand, are we willing to make a public stand for the gospel? And we made that decision and then got a public place of worship. So we have the big sign up that says Church Association. And when the coup happened back in July, somebody attacked the church. The glass door was broken, and that happened like on a Friday. And so Saturday night, we're talking and saying, you know, should we open? It's still risky. There's still the, the crowds are gathering during the nighttime, and there's still the Allahu Akbar. And, and if, we, if we meet, will we be attacked? You know, what should we do? Should we be wise? Should we be bold? And we just made the decision, let's be bold and open as normal, but tell people, you don't have to come. You know, but we feel that the Lord is leading us to come. Every single person came. And even on normal Sundays, usually we're missing like, you know, 10%, 20%. But this time, everybody came. Wow. So it really was the right thing to do. And the church really has been able to get past that fear. There were many people in Malatya who didn't know there was a church there 10 years ago. All of a sudden, there's this national headlines. There were Christians here. They've been killed. Now, like you say, you have a public place. You've got a sign on the building. This is a church. What is the level of acceptance in Malatya for the church among the average man on the street? I've had policemen look at me and say, well, at least you're honest. <laughs> um, so we have the building now. It gives a legitimacy. They see that it's legal because we've got the big sign. The police aren't coming and shutting us down. So they see that it's legal. They see that it's legitimate. That makes a big difference. There are still those who don't want it. My Turkish friends will come by and say, yeah, I was on the street corner and somebody passed by and said, let's make some missionary kebabs. Or they will say, you know, that man, he lives there. And well, I'm remembering it from the Turkish, but the closest equivalent in English would be, we need to cut off the root of his seed. Wow. Yeah. Basically, it's, it's, yeah, we need, we need to get rid of this. You know, we, we take them just, uh, it's just people expressing a dislike. We're talking today on Voice of the Martyrs Radio with Pastor Tim. He is a gospel worker in the nation of Turkey. Let's talk about Susanna Geski because she is the widow of Tilman, who was killed uh, in the Christian publishing house in Malatya. She's still there. She's still living the Christian life. She's still involved in the church. 
how much pressure was there? And I think pressure both from good-hearted people who would say, listen, it's not safe for you here. You need to go home. I think there was probably also some pressure from authority people in Turkey who said, listen, we don't want this story to be told anymore. Please go home so this will be forgotten. How much pressure was there on her to go back to Germany, to to get out, to leave? I don't know how much pressure the government put on her. Fortunately, at the time, there was the ongoing trial, and so she in some ways needed to stay for that. And she was fortunate in that her personal church leaders did not put a lot of pressure on her. They did talk to her about the options. They did want her to take some time away from Turkey and to think it through in the safety of Germany before deciding to return. But Suzanne never, ever sort of felt a pull away. She always felt like her job was there. In fact, even before the killings happened, Tillman had a translating company, and that company had been closed down by the government. That's why he was in the publishing house. That wasn't his normal place. And Tillman had started to talk to Suzanne and said, I feel like my time here is drawing to a close. And so he was working hard to sort of give his final words to the people he was discipling because he really felt like the Lord was moving them on. But Suzanne was like, she never felt that. She felt, no, you know, we need to be here. So it became a point of family tension where Tillman was saying, you know, God is saying, you know, wrap things up. And she was saying, no, no, God's saying, stay, stay. And so when when the killings happened, it was very clear that, you know, God had prepared them for that in a way. Some of the workers in the city, their, their leadership, their elders told them, you are leaving. Whereas Suzanne, thankfully, was given the freedom to decide. But she didn't think she could stay there alone. And God provided other brothers and sisters who were able to come in and be with her during that time. And really, she was the anchor that held the church together. She planted a very big flag of this is what Christianity is. She said, you know, I forgive them in the name of Jesus. Father, forgive them. They didn't know what they were doing. And that made the public TV and made the news all over Turkey. And a Turkish writer, not a Christian, but an Islamic writer said, this woman did more in one sentence than a thousand missionaries could do in a thousand years. A strong statement of faith. And we thought it was a, a wonderful thing. One interesting thing is many of my neighbors didn't understand it. Their response was, wow, she must not have loved her husband. Wow. <laughs> because she forgave because the Because she forgave. To, to them, revenge and, is and, and hate <laughs> is, is the right response. Mm-hmm. Um, their worldview is so strongly eye for an eye that for someone to, to release that and to let go of it, it just did not fit. That cannot be someone who loved her husband. It was a, even though Suzanne made a strong and clear presentation of the gospel message, it did not make it through the filter of so many Turks. That's a very interesting thing. And I, like you say, that that Islamic mindset or Turkish mindset of revenge. So for her to go on national television, that's so interesting. Some people see that. She says, I forgive them. We as Christians think that's amazing. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And right. in fact, when I met her, I asked her that question. How, how did you do that? Uh, and she said very clearly, I didn't. God did. God right. gave me the ability to do that. But it's interesting that some in Turkey would say, well, man, she must not have really 
loved her husband that much. Yeah, the cultural and spiritual blinders are very strong. And I mean, the Bible speaks of it. People are, people are deaf and they are, they are blind. And if, unless the Holy Spirit opens their eyes and ears, they can't even hear the gospel. So we do a lot of our prayer just into that fact, Lord, bring people who, whose ears are opened. Because I can talk for hours with somebody and Turks are not good Muslims. So having grown up in Indonesia, I know a little bit about it. And so I'm like, you do this, don't you? And this and this and this. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, and you're supposed to do this in Islam. You haven't done it, have you? No. And, and this one, no. This one, and this one. And I'll say, look, brother, according to the Tevrat and Zebur, the Old Testament, you're going to hell. According to the Injil, the New Testament, you're going to hell. But according to your own book, the, the Quran, you're going to hell. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Here's Jesus and here's, here's the path out. And they'll look at me. And they'll just say, wow, you speak really good Turkish, and they leave. And so you, you cannot, with logic, mm-hmm. break through those filters. There is a spiritual aspect, a spiritual awakening that needs to happen before the knowledge can break through and, and touch anything. Can you share a story of someone who that's happened to? You just God has opened their eyes and made them have that hunger and— you didn't have to you didn't have to convince them with logic it was just a natural thing probably in our deaf church we have the the most examples of that god god brought along a deaf man who had been a quran teacher and um he had desired god and even though he was a very devout muslim waking up at 5 in the morning for the first prayer and washing and five times a day praying, he had never been able to get rid of the feeling of guilt and the fear of death. And when one of his students actually met Christians in another town, that student had written back to his old teacher saying, hey, the Christians are saying this, you know, what's my answer? And a desire had grown in his heart to meet Christians. So he asked that guy, are there any Christians in my town? And so we were connected with him just a few meetings of writing, this is what Jesus teaches, this is what Jesus teaches, this is who Jesus is. He said very quickly, this is the man I want to follow. Wow. But not only that, he immediately began bringing more and more people to hear us, but the people couldn't understand because they're coming to church and we're doing things with guitars and there's, there's African people there and there's Korean people there and there's Americans and there's Turks. They had no idea what's going on. His own wife, testifies she had no idea what's going on and she didn't used to wear the head covering until she married him he was a conservative muslim so he he forced her to wear the head covering and he forced her you know do this pray like this but now he's changing up and and she's like are you going to force me he said no so but she's looking at it, she has no idea what's going on and so it wasn't until my wife went over and started to explain to her one and one that she understood in her head but She's like, well, you know, the Quran teaches this path and the Bible teaches that path. And I I just don't know. But she says one time she fell asleep and she had a dream and she's walking down a road and she looks to the side and she sees people and there's flames and they're, they're burning. She says, and that frightened her. So she looked up and up ahead of her was Jesus with his arms wide open. And she said she woke up. And that was when she believed. Wow. So God just reached right through. And we were praying, Lord, you know, we, we don't even speak Turkish well enough. Sign language, we're dying here, Lord. Please touch them directly. And he did. And so with the deaf, over and over, I think because of our massive weakness, you know, our inability to communicate, he is touching them 
directly in ways. And in some ways, they haven't heard all the lies, you know. In schools, the children are taught the Bible's been changed. They're taught the missionaries are coming and they're going to try to deceive you. Whereas the deaf people, they haven't heard those lies. So you show them the Bible and say, hey, the Bible says this. And they're like, oh. And they will evaluate that. Those who are deaf who don't have physical ears have more open spiritual ears to the gospel. Interesting. How common is it among Turkish Muslims to have a supernatural encounter, a dream or a vision, something that that opens the door or at least kind of draws them toward the gospel? It seems to be very common. I've heard several testimonies where somebody will say, I saw Jesus, or I saw this man and he said this, and they will quote scripture. And they, then they will meet somebody and they'll say, yeah, I had this dream and this guy said this, and, and the Christian will be like, let me open this book and show it to you. <laughs> um, and I don't, I don't have the theological framework for why, you know, or how, you know, to understand that, but it's something we're praying for because it is effective. It goes beyond the, the walls, the grid, the defenses. I mean, on the other hand, I met one guy who was a Muslim, and he said, you know, I've seen Jesus three times. And the third time I told him, why are you coming to me? I'm a Muslim. You know, it's not the cure-all. God is not forcing them. You know, he is still calling, calling them gently. Let's talk a little bit about how we can pray for the church in Malatya now. One of the things I know that's just happened recently, the trial for the five killers has finally come to a close after nine-plus years, more than a hundred hearings. How has that affected the church? Is there a sense of, you know, finally they got these guys? Is it a sense of, well, they got some of the guys, but there's more behind the scenes that got away with it? How is the church kind of feeling about that trial process and the verdict? The church itself, for the most part, are people who've come to faith after the killings. Those who were in the city during the killings, and many, many of them have moved away to the larger cities and to churches in the larger cities. One of the struggles of a church in a small town, even here in America, I know, is the fact that the jobs are in the big mm -hmm. cities. For most of the people in the church, it's been 10 years, and they had already moved on. We have chosen not to worry about the past, but worry about the lost who are still there, and we're, we're forward-focused. In our country, there's a deep cynicism among people who basically say, yeah, they're put in prison now, but they can be out tomorrow. Once the cameras go away, there's no telling what will happen. And the situation is so topsy-turvy, so upside-down right now, with the upheaval through the attempted coup and the state of emergency, meaning that what you know the traditional laws don't hold, new things can be put into effect. People don't know what to expect. So rather than worrying about it and saying, what will happen tomorrow? What will happen if this happens, if that happens? We're choosing to say, all right, today, we're allowed to evangelize openly. And so while it is today, we're going to work. And tomorrow, if they shut us down, we'll worry about that tomorrow. There might be a lesson there for some American believers to, <laughs> to maybe adapt a little bit of that uh, idea. What about I want us to be able to pray for Suzanne and for her family. Are there some specific ways that we can pray for them? How are they doing? They're doing very well. God really has has had his hand on the children. 
they've lost their physical father, but as a spiritual father, he's really been there for them. And Suzanne has done a fantastic job of raising their kids. And even before things happened, it was very obvious that that they were a deeply committed family. Because when Suzanne talked to the kids after the killings and said, look, a lot of people are telling us we should leave. What do you think? The 13-year-old daughter said, Mama, how could we possibly go? You know, Daddy died for these people. Wow. So they're doing well. The oldest daughter is studying in Ankara. She's in university. Uh, you can pray for the son. He's just finished high school and finished his community service equivalent of the military service. And so he is currently exploring whether he should go into a trade or what he should do, live in Germany, live in Turkey. The kids have grown up in Turkey, so their German actually is their second language. And so that's going to deal with all kinds of re-entry issues. So he's probably the one who's at the stage where he needs the most prayer. The youngest daughter is finishing high school in Germany, and she very much still wants to meet the killers, wants to give them a Bible, but that's still not possible. She was really upset the one time they were released from the prison to transfer to house arrest. They released them at like one in the morning. And she found about it on the news the next day. And she was like, why didn't they tell me? I would have been there with a Bible. <laughs> you know, she's, wow. she's really an encouragement. How can we pray for the church that you lead there? And what are the needs as you... Like you say, kind of not looking back, looking forward, how can we pray for the church? As the unrest continues, especially in the southeast, more and more foreign workers are being forced to leave. And so there's actually a lot of smaller churches in the region that are turning to us and saying, can you help? And so we are not just reaching out to our own city, but to a couple of the neighboring cities, and then there are little groups where we've been reaching out to them and trying to plant new churches. And so the the fields are white for harvest. We really need workers. And as we've been losing more foreign workers, we've been trying to equip and send out national workers. Our church is very small. There's only so much we can carry ourselves. Um, so God has provided some partners. If he wants to keep going with this, he would either provide further partners or provide us with the right ideas and ability to do job training so our people can go and work their own way. As a Christian evangelist, you either have to work for yourself with a trade that can make money even if the neighbors hate you, or you can't go. <laughs> so that's one of the biggest keys. If we want to reach the unreached areas of Turkey, finding the right job training ideas, if we can find that, we can unlock so much of the unreached areas. Because there's only so many people that the Turkish church can send out because, you know, it's a small church. Right. Pastor Tim, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for your ministry and for equipping us to pray for Turkey, to pray for the church there. As I mentioned when we started out, Turkey is one of my very favorite countries in the whole world. So I encourage our listeners, pray for the nation of Turkey, pray for the church in Malatya, for the church in the nation as a whole, particularly right now as there's so much upheaval there. Pastor Tim, thank you for being our guest this week on Voice of the Martyrs Radio. And thank you, and thank everybody for praying. As always, you can connect with us online at vomradio.net. 
If you have a question or a comment, there are ways on the website for you to connect with us. You can also subscribe to the free VOM Radio podcast. The web address again is vomradio.net. You know, the holidays can get stressful. We tend to get busy and sometimes we're put in contact with uh, what you might call difficult people. But next week, you'll hear a story that will put those trials into perspective. We'll hear from a man who went into North Korea and was detained for his faith. He really knows what it means to suffer for the sake of the gospel. It's perspective we all need to hear, and you can catch that story next week right here on the Voice of the Martyrs Radio Network.